Amen. I love that. I'm laying down all my religion because I want to know you, Lord. I love that line. I used to think that I wasn't good enough, that I didn't measure up. But you know what? If God's here with me, if God gives me two thumbs up, then, hey, that's all that matters, right? If God is for me, right? That, that is all that matters. Just, uh, uh, just a few ground rules, and hold on. I'll be right back. Um, you can probably still hear me, okay? Snow, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Uh, um, I had a clock that I turned on for no apparent reason. <laughs> it's a timer. Uh, uh, ground rules are, um, uh, number one is lots of amens and comments, you know, uh, on, your, on the Facebook Live. Um, if I say, get it, you say, got it, I say, good. I almost didn't get it, but now I got it, and you say, good, right? And, and, uh, and I want to start off this morning doing my usual thing, and my usual thing is to read Scripture, can't go wrong there, and then to pray us into the conversation. And, and I know it, uh, it may seem weird because we're not in the same room, and you're in your living room, and maybe reclining in a chair right now. Um, but I, I would like to ask you, if you would mind, uh, standing as I read a few uh, passages of Scripture, just as a sign of respect and honor for God's Word. Uh, three passages. Uh, the first is in Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, So is my word that comes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired. It's the Greek word, God breathed. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. And the last is in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to lean into your word. And God, I pray that as the rain and snow come down and water the earth, that your word will water our lives, that it will achieve your purposes, that it will accomplish what you want it, that it will not come back empty. I pray that your God-breathed word will inspire us and correct us and teach us and shape us into the people that you want us to be. And God, you say that you're able to do immeasurably more, so I just pray that you do that today. I pray that you open up hearts and minds and that we leave this place changed and and ready to celebrate, embrace, and share the simple gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated in this room and at home. (laughs) Now, I got to admit, though, it's been very different. Uh, We've had an awesome couple weeks here in Easter uh, 2020. And, and I think it was, a, it was a great reminder to us that, that Jesus is the reason for this season too. Right? It's, it's not about buildings and it's not about programs. It's not about, it's not about uh, production. 
It's about Jesus. And understand, just as the grave could not contain him 2,000 years ago, COVID-19 and stay-at-home mandates did not and cannot contain him today. Amen? We've had some powerful conversations. Two weeks ago on Palm Sunday, we joined that, that crowd of thousands surrounding Jesus as he walked into Jerusalem, rather rode into Jerusalem, announcing that he was their Messiah, the true king. And last Easter, right, last week, Easter Sunday, we, we, we saw hope rising in some unexpected places, some unusual places. We saw hope rising in a, in a place of grief and loss. We saw it rising in a place of fear, in a place of doubt, and in a place of, of failure. And, and listen, fear and loss and doubt and failure and grief are, are, are not only real, but they are powerful emotions that every one of us have experienced at one time or another. And maybe even right now you're experiencing one of those emotions because of this current COVID-19 or some other circumstance. If so, just remember that because of the resurrection, hope can rise even there, even now. You see, whenever Jesus enters a situation, whenever Jesus enters a circumstances, he brings hope with him all the time and changes things every single time. And so as we wrap up this Easter season a series, um, I want to talk about something I'm just calling, okay, so, so what's next? I, I understand Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, you know, they're three of the most important events in all of human history. So what's next? I mean, is there a next? Like, is there anything of, of any significant importance that could possibly compare with or follow those two events? Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that there is a next. As a matter of fact, this next involves two events that you could say are nearly or just as essential as Jesus' death and resurrection. In fact, without these two events, for the most part, Jesus' death and resurrection would be pointless, would be pretty much meaningless. Yeah, I actually said that. You heard me correctly. Without these two events, his death and resurrection would, for the most part, be meaningless. And so this morning, I, I want to talk about those two events. But first, I need to take us on a little trip from the garden to the empty tomb. In Genesis 1, 1, we read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created everything. He created billions of galaxies, 200 to 400 billion galaxies like our, like our Milky Way galaxy. And, and this sucker is huge, all right? Like it has anywhere from 100 to 400 billion stars. It has 100 billion planets in it. And if you could travel at the speed of light, which is about 186,000 miles per second, it would take you 200,000 years to travel across our galaxy. The Voyager 1, which is a little bit faster than Voyager 2, travels at about 37,000 miles per hour. It would take the Voyager 1 1.7 billion years to travel across our galaxy. And listen, our God simply spoke this galaxy into existence, ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. No wonder David wrote these words. Great is the Lord. He's most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. And God created the earth. He said, let there be, and, and there it was. And, 
This is a picture of the earth taken from outer space. And there's a good chance that most of us were alive when this picture was taken. Like we're, we're like somewhere, you know, on this giant ball floating in space. And God created crashing oceans and thundering waterfalls like Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe, which is one mile wide. It's twice as high as, the, as Niagara Falls, and it has a maximum flow rate of 184 million gallons per minute. God created massive forests like the Amazon rainforest. It's 2.1 million square miles. That's over half of the size of the United States. It's estimated that it has 390 billion individual trees broken up into 1,600 species. Who knew there were that many trees? God did. And then God created animals, right? You know, you see a bunch of them right there. There, I looked this up. I didn't count. But there's 8.7 million species of animals on the planet. 6.5 in the land, 2.2 in the sea. Crazy. God just speaks, and all this comes into being. And God saw that it was good, but it wasn't quite good enough. In Genesis 1, 26, he says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, God saw all that he'd made, and it was very good. You know, when I, I read those words recently on Wednesday night during the, uh, the youth group Zoom, and, and when I read that, you know, I read God saying, let us make man in our image. I just got a sense that God was like, like really excited. Like, all right, here it is. This is what we've been waiting for. Let us make man in our own image. And God did. And God placed them in a in a garden paradise, and they had this personal, intimate relationship with God. And as crazy as it sounds, the God would literally, think about this, the God who breathes out massive galaxies, billions of them, right, would, would, would take walks with them, would take walks with them in the cool of the garden. I mean, imagine what it would have been like living in a world like that. Live in a garden like that, untainted by sin and corruption. Imagine what it would be like to have God knock on your door. Yo, Steve, you up yet? I texted you like half hour ago. <laughs> Are you ready to go for a walk? And you took a walk with God. Things were good. They were very good. But they weren't very good for very long. You see, even before Adam and Eve made it out of the third chapter of the 1,189 chapter story, they mess up everything, not just for themselves, but for us, for you and for I. They disobey God. They, they take the bite. They, and because of their choice, sin, death, and corruption, and separation invaded God's world, and mankind was kicked out of that garden intimacy. But God had a plan to set things right. He had a plan to remove the distance and to give death, sin, and separation a crushing, lethal, once and for all, time, death blow. You see, since the dawn of creation, the overriding theme of human history has been God's passionate pursuit of a prodigal people. God chasing after people that most times are running away from him and trying to avoid him. It's history, human history has been the story of this loving God doing whatever it took to bring mankind back to himself. And it took a lot, right? It took him leaving heaven, putting on flesh. It took him dying on the cross, you know? See, 
That wasn't just a man on the cross. It was God. The same God who breathed out those stars was willing to be beaten and hang on a cross and die. And listen, God's plan to ensure that his passion and pursuit would one day be reality, it really was a it really was a three-step plan, and the first step in this plan was the, was the nation of Israel. I understand through Abraham in Genesis 12, God was going to form a nation that would begin to show the world what the one true God was actually like, and this nation was to be different. It was to live different than the rest of the world, and for about 2,000 years, God shapes this nation to get them ready for the coming of the Messiah. And he shapes them by such things as God gave them the law, his words, his commands, his decrees on how to live. God gave them a temple, a place where his presence could dwell. And then God gave them a, he gave them a sacrificial system where such that a sinful people could approach a holy God. And, and God taught them about holiness and about sin, how how obedience leads to blessings and how disobedience leads to death and some other very not-so-good negative consequences. And again, for 2,000 years, God tries to shape his people. And believe me when I tell you, it wasn't an easy task. I mean, these people had a difficult time getting things right and keeping things right. Sound familiar? Ever look in the mirror? I mean, God gave them the law, but they couldn't keep it. God gave them the temple, but they either ignored it or treated it with contempt. God gave them kings, but most were proud and arrogant. God gave them his prophets, which words of encouragement and a call to return to him, but they either ignored those prophets, they ridiculed those prophets, they didn't listen to those prophets, and at times they even killed those prophets. You see, when you look at step one in God's plan to bring things back together again, there doesn't seem to be much hope for these people. And listen, if you've ever systematically read through the Old Testament, it starts to wear you out. You know what? That's exactly the point. You see, the Old Testament, it just, we just get tired of it because it doesn't work. In a way, that, that's its intention. It was in, it, it, it's, it's not supposed to work, at least not completely or fully, because all of it is designed and all of it is intended to point to Jesus. Because he's our only hope. He's the only one who can save us. He is the life. He is the truth. And he is the way back to that garden intimacy that we lost in Genesis chapter 3. Get it? Good. And this brings us to step two. Jesus, the son of the living God, who left heaven, stepped down from his glory, put on human flesh, who lived a sinless life, who died a sinner's death, a, a substitutionary death, which means that Jesus died in our place. And Jesus died in my place. He died in your place. Again, that's crazy, right? I mean, we're talking God. That's God dying in my place. That's God being beating in my place. That's God suffering in my place. That's God for a time being separated from himself in my place. And here's the deal. And God poured out his sin-hating wrath on Jesus so that he could pour out his soul-loving grace on us, right? And that's how much he loves you, that he was willing to pour out his hatred of sin on Jesus because he loves you that much right where you are this morning. You see, God's passion pursuit of his people caught up to 
them at the cross, and his resurrection sealed the deal for all eternity. Romans 4.25 says this, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. You know, that's a churchy kind of word. And I remember back from my beginnings, my baby time in Christianity, I was taught that that means just as if I've never sinned, right? He was raised to life for my justification so that when God looks at me in Christ, it's just as if I had never sinned at all. That's some good news. And Paul says in Romans 6, 4, a little further on in that book, Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. And listen, this new way of life is a return to walking again in that garden intimacy with God, all barriers removed. Jesus' death and resurrection are huge deals. They are of first important stuff. So what's next? What's next? Well, the next step in God's plan to rescue, redeem, and return us to garden intimacy is a church. You got the nation of Israel, you got Jesus, then you have the church. His body, his bride, the new and never to be shaken kingdom that he established 2,000 years ago, the hope of the world. And listen, we will never understand the church, and the church is us, right? It's not this building we're in, right? The church is us, the church is people. We'll never understand the church. We'll never understand why we are here and, and what we are called to do until we see the church in its proper role of being an essential part in God's plan to rescue and redeem the people made in his own likeness. Again, the two greatest events in human history, right, are Jesus' death and his resurrection. And as I said earlier, there are two other events. And it it seems kind of crazy to say it, but two other events that if they did not happen... God's plan to rescue and redeem mankind would have failed. And and the first event is the meeting in Galilee. It's Thursday night and Jesus is the upper room. He's just instituted the Lord's Supper. He's just told his guys that, hey, I'm about to be killed. And then he says this in Matthew 26, verse 32. But after I've been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. All right? And then early that Sunday morning when the, when, when the women came to the tomb, not only did they find the tomb empty, but they, they found an angel there, and the angel had this message for them. And now go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Now, now what is so important about this meeting in Galilee that, that, that Jesus... And you, Tells his guys moments before his death, hey, break out your Google calendar and make sure you're ready to meet me when I rise in Galilee. And, and what is so important about this meeting in Galilee that it's part of the first things that are said after Jesus was risen from the dead. Well, the important thing is that it was on that mountaintop that Jesus met with his disciples and he gave them their mission. You see, 
His work was done in rescuing and restoring. Their work had just begun. Just as the Father had sent Jesus, Jesus was now sending them. And then we read in Matthew 28, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When did he tell them that? Thursday night in the upper room, hours before his arrest. Why was this meeting so important? Here you go. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Their mission was to go, was to make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus had commanded. And and you know what blows me away about all this? That Jesus not only passed the baton of God's plan of redemption and rescue to those 11 frail, fallen, finite, fearful guys, but that he does the same thing today. That he passes that baton of redemption to you and I. Frere, falling, finite human beings. Crazy. Like, like Jesus, do you really know what you're doing? You, you see, here's the deal. It, it's either the church or it's lights out. You see, we are plan A for making disciples. We are plan A for bringing men and women to a safe relationship with Jesus Christ And there is no plan B. We're it. Shortly before Jesus went to heaven, he wanted to clarify one last time what the mission was. On one occasion, Acts chapter 1, while they were eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, none yet. None your business. None your business. That's not what you're called to do. You're not called to draw draw a bunch of charts about the end times and stuff like that. It's not for you know the times or dates the Father set by his own authority. But you'll see power and the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you may be our witnesses in Jerusalem, home close where you live. In Judea and Samaria, the people who are culturally and racially different than you, and then to the ends of the earth. He said, you're to be my, he didn't say you're to be my uh, attorney, defense attorney. God does not need to be defended. He didn't say, go and be my salesman. You don't need to sell God. He said, you're to be my witnesses. And what a witness does, right, is simply, hey, I saw this. This is what happened to me, right? Uh, we're to go everywhere and say, hey, you know what? Here's what I saw. Here's what I know. Here's what Jesus has done in my life. And so his guys, they go back to Jerusalem. They waited. Others joined them. Jesus' mom joined them. Uh, to the number of people, got to about 120. And you know what they did while they were waiting? Go figure. They all joined together constantly in prayer. They all joined together constantly in prayer. You know, that's probably a good thing to do when we're waiting for God to move in our life, right? You know, maybe instead of fretting and worrying, say, hey, it's not happening yet. Things aren't changing the way I want them to. You know what? I'll wait, but I'll pray, trusting in God. And so they, and they don't know how long they'd be waiting. Would it be a day? Would it be weeks? Would it be months? And this brings us to the fourth great event in God's plan, and that is the day of Pentecost, right? That's the Greek name given to the Jewish festival, the Feast of Weeks, 
have been celebrated since the time of Moses. It came 50 days after the Passover and it celebrated the harvest that had began and it also celebrated the giving of the law, which happened about 50 days after God's people were delivered and the law was given on Mount Sinai. It, it was one of the best attended feasts because uh, the weather was much better. Uh, the population of Jerusalem and Judea was around 100,000. It would, it, would, um, it would go 10 times as much during this time. And listen, it, you know, think about it. it. It's not an accident that God chose the day of Pentecost to launch his, his redemption plan and birth the church. I mean, think about it. Like, like we walk around right now, right? What do you see everywhere? You see new life springing up everywhere. You're having to cut the grass that for, for months you hadn't had to cut the grass, right? Um, again, it's the best attended feast. There were people from all over the world coming to this feast, right? And I think it's so, God, that on a time when they're celebrating the giving of the old law, that now they're celebrating the beginning of the new covenant. When the day of Pentecost came, Jesus, guys were at the temple suddenly allowed Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came down from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. So it's not actually wind, it's a sound of wind. You know, and wind usually blows horizontally. This is coming down. Can you imagine being somewhere where you have this loud sound like wind rushing down from above you and filling the entire room that you're in? That would kind of freak you out, right? And if you weren't freaked out yet, then you see this huge sheet of fire come down from above. And this fire separates and it, it lands on each of the apostles. And the verb used there uh, indicates that it landed on them and then it kind of, kind of disappeared. And, and this is really what's happening here. I like to refer to it as the second Sinai. And, and uh, here's, a, here's a little chart here. First Sinai in Exodus, what do you have? You have a loud sound. Uh, second Sinai in Acts 2, what do you have? A loud sound. Uh, first Sinai, you have fire. What, what do you have in the second Sinai? You have fire. Uh, first Sinai, you have the birth of the old covenant. Second Sinai, what do you have? You have the birth of the new covenant. You know, uh, the first Sinai was, hey, it was identify Moses. Hey, Moses is my spokesman. Listen to him, right? Uh, in Acts chapter 2, it was to say, hey, the apostles are my spokesmen. Listen to them, Right? Again, none of this is accidental, right? This is a second sign. This is the birth of the new covenant. And we read all of them, the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, that's languages, as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Uh, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans, Right? That was an insult, right? Aren't they all from West Virginia, right? Or wherever you want to say, right? Uh, aren't they all uneducated? Yet we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own language. And if you've ever been to a foreign country, whenever you hear your language being spoken, it gets you your attention, right? Amazed and perplexed, perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? And Peter's like, glad you asked, right? He pulls out his sermon notes. He clicks on his PowerPoint. He passes out his fill-in-the-blank outlines. He says, hey, I got a three-point sermon for you. Uh, point one is that the gospel is for all people. That Peter stood up with the leaven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews, and all you who live in Jerusalem. Let me explain you. Let me do some explaining. 
Uh, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only 9 in the morning. I was, that's always been so funny to me. Right? 3 o'clock, maybe they'd be drunk. Right now, they're not drunk. Uh, no, this is what was spoken. All the stuff you're seeing, the fire, the wind. Uh, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, right? And he's like, okay, these, that's, Peter's saying, hey, that's now. What Joel talked about hundreds of years ago, that's happening right now. And listen, if you were in that audience that day, your jaw would have dropped to the ground. I mean, that God would invite all people to be a part of his kingdom and new covenant, it would have been shocking. Now, it shouldn't have been, right? I mean, since he called Abraham, God always wanted it to be, he, he blessed the nation to be a blessing to all people, but somehow they missed it. If you jump down to verse 21, we see the same theme that it's for everyone, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Peter's like, hey, you know, God's kingdom has come, and it's not an exclusive Jews-only kingdom. Rather, it's an everyone-is-invited kingdom. Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, slave-free, educated, uneducated. See, everyone has been given the opportunity to call on the name of the Lord and be saved through his death, burial, and resurrection. Point number one is a gospel for all people. Point number two in Peter's sermon is Jesus is alive, and he's both Lord and Christ. And so Peter, he's standing, he's standing in the temple before thousands of people, and he preaches the very first gospel sermon, and he uses recent events like Jesus' death, burial, his ministry, his miracles, and Old Testament prophecies to prove that Jesus was exactly who he said he was, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then he concludes this way, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. I'm glad that wasn't the end of his sermon. All right? Because there's a, there's a final point to his sermon. That there's an incredible promise to get on. Get in on. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Listen, for 2,000 years the gospel has been preached, but this is the very first time. God had been waiting since creation to let people know how they can get back to him fully and completely. No more barriers, just as if they never sinned. And you notice how their question has gone from, it's kind of gone from, a, from their head to their heart, right? Uh, from the head, what does this mean? To the heart, what shall we do? It went from curiosity to conviction. Now imagine if you were in that crowd that day. Right. What would you be thinking? Oh my gosh. God came. My Messiah came and I missed him. My Messiah came and we killed him. What in the world am I going to do? How do I get out of this mess? That was her question. How do I get out of this mess I'm in? How do I get out of this mess I've made with my life? Maybe you're thinking that. And all humanity leaned in to hear Peter's response. Now, what if his response would have been, hey, sorry, too late. Too late, you blew it. You blew it. You know, it's game over for you. There's no coming back from where you are. And if that had been Peter's response, we wouldn't be here today, right, listening. 
But listen, the gospel, the good news, the news that those gathered at the temple then and those gathered here now need to hear is that, that the one true God, the Alpha and Omega, the always existing one, the sovereign righteous God is a God of the do-over. He's a God of the second chance. He's a God of new beginnings. Amen? And Peter replied, repent to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We repent and we're baptized in his name. I understand once you're convinced and believe that Jesus is who he said he is, these are the terms of entering the new covenant. And in doing so, we receive the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, and the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit does, he, his job is to work out in us what Christ has already won for us. Holy Spirit wants to work out in us love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, selfishness. No, kidding. A gentleness, self-control. He, he wants to work out in us what Christ has already won for us. Amen? And he says this, the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. For many of the words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. I'll talk about good news, right? I mean, there's a way out of this mess, right? It's about what Jesus has already done, not what we do. And, and that's what makes those seven words so sad to me in verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized. You know what that also means? There were some who what? There were some who didn't accept it. Now, how many didn't accept it? We don't know. And, and, and why they didn't accept the message, we don't know. But how tragic to be offered the greatest gift of a lifetime, to be a starving person, be offered food, and to, and to walk away from it. And they did. I understand the day of Pentecost, the apostles in embracing their mission were given the power to proclaim a message that created a movement that has been changing lives for 2,000 years. I'm one of those lives. And so are you in this room and many who are sitting at home. A movement that in spite of intense, harsh persecution that began right from the very beginning in the book of Acts that continued for hundreds of years, brought down the Roman Empire. It, it, it was a movement of love and truth that brought down the Roman Empire without even having to raise a sword. Just a few quotes about this movement as we wrap up. I'm not even going to try to say this guy's name. He's a yellow historian. It's a crazy-looking name. Jerusalem Pelicanine. Okay. Anyhow, yellow historian. Regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If we're possible, with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? And I contend if you pulled it all out, I'm not sure we would want what was left. And here's what Alvin Schmidt says in his book, How History Changed the World, How Christianity Changed the World. No other religion 
philosophy, teaching, nation, movement, whatever, has so changed the world for the better as Christianity has done. Its shortcomings are heavily outweighed by its benefits to all mankind. Jesus died and rose again. Removing the barrier of sin that separated us from God and opening up the way for rescue, restoration, and return to garden intimacy. Those two events happened. They happened. So what's your next? They happened. Uh, what's your next? What's your response? Will it be like those in Acts 2.41, you're going to reject the message altogether? I hope not. See, here's the two responses that God is looking for. You know, surrendering to the message. Surrender to the good news. Surrender to that simple gospel, right? Crazy as it seems, God loved you so much that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross so whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You know, have you surrendered to that message? You know, have you surrendered in repentance and in baptism? Encourage, if you have not, think about that. Let's talk about that. And the other response is just to pursue does that even make sense? I think that's worded a little crazy right there. Yeah, we got extra with. Pursuing with the mission, right? Pursue the mission with greater passion. Pursue the mission with a greater passion, with a renewed passion. Both of which will result in, I think, living a life of joy, right? So you have an X, right? And we're all going to make a choice. Every, you know, in this room and those listening, make a choice. You know, it's God's plan from the beginning, and we're going to have a choice to make. Um, would you pray with me? God, thank you for this opportunity just to, to be here, to be in your presence, to hear your gospel, to hear this message, Lord, that Peter proclaimed 2,000 years ago. Thank you, God, for providing a way to restore our relationship and our, our garden intimacy with you. Father, I pray for those who have yet to surrender to that message, God, that they will give it careful and intense consideration. And for those of us who have, that we will renew our passion uh, to share this message with others. We just thank you, Lord, for who you are. We thank you for being the rock that we can stand upon, for being the the literal cornerstone of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.